first coming attractions. Before you go out and spend money on that new movie or digital media, make sure to listen to the entire show right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll take you behind the scenes, interview celebrities, and review new movies, TV shows, and digital releases. Now, here are your hosts from Kids First Coming Attractions. Welcome to Kids First Coming Attractions. I'm Jerry Ors. I hope everyone is staying safe right now. We have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking with a lot of amazing filmmakers who have so much experience with how film has evolved and grown over the years. Our first guest, Gary Gutierrez, he has done so many things. Title design, special effects, visual effects. He did title design for films like Black Stallion and Mozart in the Jungle. He founded Colossal Pictures, which has worked with a lot of amazing companies, including MTV. And my first question is... Before you did all of this, one of your first jobs was animating at Sesame Street. So can you talk a little bit about how you first got to that point where you got into animation and what made you want to get into digital media at all? Well, I, I, started, um, I started out as a, a printmaking major at the San Francisco Art Institute. But I got interested in film while I was there. I bought a Bolex 16mm uh, camera on layaway took me like six or eight months to actually get it into my own hands um, and made a short little film there, uh, uh, kind of a documentary. And then um, uh, the head of the uh, film department, Larry Jordan, also an animator, and he suggested to me that I might want to put together my uh, art interests with uh, film which basically equals animation. He was right. That certainly was uh, intriguing to me. And so um, through the honors program at the Art Institute, if you got an apprenticeship in your uh, major, you could spend the last six months doing that apprenticeship. And I did, in fact, get uh, a job with John Cordy, mostly a live-action director, but he was also an animator and had an animation background and a small... Uh, animation studio in an old Victorian house in Mill Valley. We started out, or at least I started out there doing animation for uh, children's films. And this happened to be like about the second season of Sesame Street. And they uh, uh, invited us to bid on some various elements for Sesame Street. So that's how I began. So when you first started in special effects, animation, visual effects, it was a very different world. Everything was on optical printers, in-camera effects. It was a completely different today where everything's done on a computer using computer programs. So how has your day-to-day -day life changed since you first began to today? Well, one, I want to note that everything is not done on the computer now. There are, there are some directors who prefer to not use computer-generated imagery or at least to minimize it or you know use it where appropriate where it's cost effective you know there are many ways to skin a cat so uh you can look at a given problem uh in a in a film that the director the script presents to you and look at it several ways in fact that's really the job of the visual effects supervisor the supervisor uh talks to the director gets a sense of the style of the movie, what he would, uh, you get a sense of what would be appropriate or not, what the, what, what the logistics are for the, the picture, what the budget is. Um, and from that, looking at uh, the script, which is then broken down into storyboards. Storyboards are like a comic book version of the script that show you panel by panel in, in images what uh, a sequence is going to consist of. So the supervisor's job is to look at those boards and the script and talk to the director and find uh, the most uh, visually effective and cost-effective uh, way of, of uh, presenting the vision that the director has. And uh, I have worked with Francis Coppola on numerous movies and every one is a whole different thing. He has a different kind of thing in mind. It's not a one-size-fits-all uh, thing for any director, really. Yeah. And so um, the supervisor looks in his toolkit of potential ways to do things and tries to make a good judgment about uh, how you know it's going to be approached. Yeah. That may include uh, 
It may be all computer-generated, or it could be practical kinds of solutions that are just as good, uh, better in some cases, for certain situations. Yeah. You know? I, um, I like your points that not everything is done computer-generated, and it's very true. And what I like is that all around us, you can see uh, props and examples of how work is done without computers, and it can still look absolutely incredible. Sometimes it can look better than computer-generated imagery. You're listening to Kids First Kind of Attractions. Right now, we're talking with Gary Gutierrez, who is the founder of Colossal Pictures. He is a title designer, visual effects designer, and special effects as well. He has done so many amazing projects, so many jobs. So could you talk a little bit about how you think the skills have changed since when you first started 30, 40 years ago to today with the advent of computer technology and 3D modeling? In some ways, it's the, it's the same. Uh, there's, a, there's a, you know, if you're an artist uh, or a person who wants to be a filmmaker and uh, be creative uh, working in the visual arts, uh, it's, there's still a response to the real world to uh, observing physical phenomena, to observing the way light works, learning composition, how to make an effective visual uh, sort of subliminal level speaks to the audience. Things as simple as if you shoot a character from a low angle looking up, it makes the character seem more powerful, stronger, right? Or if you cut to that strong character's point of view, often a director will be looking slightly down on that person and uh, that makes them look weaker. Uh, a director makes those choices about the framing of everything, about the way the light looks, whether the character is in silhouette or brightly lit, and visual effects are really just sort of an extension of that same process. Visual effects uh, extend uh, filmmaking into uh, areas that might be too difficult uh, to do real-time with a camera. And the wonderful thing I think it's important for young people to to know is they don't have to have a computer uh, and uh, uh, a sophisticated program. Those things can come later. You can learn those things. But the, the thing is, is, is about sort of uh, training your way of thinking and your eye. And I would encourage uh, learning to draw. And I believe everyone can draw. It, people... Some people do it maybe a little more intuitively and start at a younger age and get used to it, but uh, you can learn to draw. In animation, you don't shoot a bunch of things and then go into editing and figure out which shots you're going to use. In animation, it's so labor-intensive and time-intensive that you have to decide every shot in advance exactly how long that shot is with maybe what we call a handle, maybe an extra 10 frames so that you have a little bit of leeway. But you basically want to uh, describe a shot or a scene or a sequence in storyboard form because that allows you to work out all of the problems there on paper before you get other people involved, before you have a whole crew there. And uh, it allows you to be more efficient and not waste time. For instance, I did the storyboards for The Black Stallion. Uh, they were about to do some additional shooting on the racetrack and on the kid riding the, the Black Stallion for the first time. Uh, they were going to do that with a helicopter, and a, it was a big deal. Yeah. So they wanted to storyboard everything in advance in order to get uh, ideas about where the camera could be uh, in order to show the crew, this is the shot we're going to do now, and they can see where that... You know, it gives everybody something to talk about. Everybody's on the same page. It's a medium for having ideas in the first place, an idea for putting them down, uh, and I, a way to then edit those ideas on paper before getting any further in the process. And the crew might, you know, be 15, 20, 30 people, and it helps them all be on the same page. It helps them to say, oh, but what, what about this problem? How are we going to deal with that? And... You know, those kinds of discussions happen around storyboards. So right now we have the storyboard work from the Black Stallion in front of us that you made yourself. So can you talk a little bit about your process for making some of these beautiful frames and how they were implemented in the final picture? For me, as a storyboard uh, artist on this particular film, it's also a matter of research. For the Black Stallion, I wanted to find ways of visualizing things by actually doing a little research. I went out to the racetrack. 
they allowed me to go into the booth that releases the horses uh, at the beginning of the race. And, uh, for instance, I was able to uh, go in there into those booths and see what could the writer see at that point. So, uh, for example, let's take this drawing right here where we have the character on a horse. What was your, kind of your process to try to figure out, uh, first of all, what the framing is and what the emotions on the character should be? Well, I, I would sort of take the direction from Carol Ballard was the director. Carol had, you know, some very specific kinds of things that he wanted, but he was looking to me, it seemed to be uh, for angles and ways of uh, defining the action that was what he wanted to represent. So he wanted uh, points of view, uh, which is what the character would see, for instance. Uh, if you cut to a, a character's uh, eyes, and then you cut to his point of view, this is his point of view looking over the the head of the horse with the, the mane flying. I, I wasn't really good at drawing horses. I didn't know, I had never really done any serious horse drawing. So I bought a model horse from a toy shop, a little, these little uh, plastic horses in various poses. And I also bought a lot of uh, Western comic books because those guys can draw horses like you wouldn't believe and i basically learned to draw horses from comic book approach to the animal which is a difficult thing to draw one last question i wanted to ask you is for people who want to get into this industry whether it be special effects visual effects animation or even title design what tips would you give them i mean there there are many ways to do it but i would say that it is important to learn to draw mm -hmm. uh you don't have to a lot of directors don't but it's a big advantage and uh plus it's fun uh it helps train your eye uh to see the the world uh in a transform it from a three-dimensional to a two-dimensional form which is what you're doing when you're making films of course i would really recommend learning to draw to storyboard because that can lead to um a lot of it it helps other people to see your vision helps you to to focus what your vision is on paper. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I want to, set, to say to the audience, storyboarding does work even for live action films. The film that just won Best Academy Award and made history for being the first international film to win Academy Award was fully storyboard driven. And that was that helped give it the look. It helped give it that developed, polished look. But Gary, thank you so much for talking to me about your experience and your career. Thanks, Gary Gutierrez, for being on the show today. Make sure to check out his many amazing projects, ranging from Black Stallion to Motorhead in the Jungle and so many more. Let's take a quick break. I'm your host, Jerry Ors from Los Angeles, and you're listening to Kids First Coming Attractions. This week's show is sponsored by Octonauts Ocean Adventure. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. To become a Kids First film critic, visit our website to find out when the next audition takes place. We hold auditions throughout the year and are always looking for kids ages 8 to 18 that love movies, love talking about movies, and love the chance to meet the talent that works on movies. We invite kids who live in or near any major city in the U.S., Canada, or the U.K. This summer, join us at our Kids First Film Critic Boot Camp at Temple University, where you can learn how to critique films, how to interview celebrities, and how to set up a home studio for next to nothing. For more info, visit www.kidsfirst.org. Think you have what it takes to become a Kids First film critic? Register to audition and give yourself a chance to join the entertainment business as a young entertainment reporter. Hurry! Our auditions take place the first Saturday of the month via Skype. Help us help other kids make smart decisions about the movies they choose. At Kids First, we believe that smart kids make smart consumers. 
We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are tuned into Kids First Coming Attractions on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Shh! Turn your phone off. Another film review or celebrity interview is coming up. Hey, welcome back. I'm Jerry Ortz from Los Angeles, and you're listening to Kids First Coming Attractions. Now, our next guest is a puppeteer named Michael McCormick. He has worked on many amazing films that you have heard of, like The Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, and Return of the Jedi. Benjamin will be talking to him all about the world of puppetry and how has it grown and changed as technology has evolved. I'm going to hand it off to Benjamin. Go ahead, Benjamin. This is Benjamin Price reporting for Kids First, and today I'll be reviewing my, or interviewing Michael McCormick. So uh, let's get started. So, Mr. McCormick, Dark Crystal, starts quite a resume. What project have you been most proud of to be a part of, and what puppet are you most happy to have helped create? I came into the industry uh, very late in my life. So I was like, uh, oh, let's say it was 19, 19 uh, 79, right? So I was like 29 years old, which is ancient in the film business. So I was, uh, you know, had a long line of very young, very talented people sort of nibbling at my heels. So it uh, it was an interesting, interesting uh, story. Uh, Dark Crystal, because it was my first major project, even though I had done some other things, uh, but Dark Crystal used all my talents and some I, I'm not sure I've even gained to this day, but I faked it at the time. Where did your love of puppetry stem from? Ah, that's a good question because the first puppet show I saw, I was about two years old, three years old, and I, it was in Brooklyn, New York, and I remember it very well. Uh, so having a memory as clear as the memory I have of that from the, you know, late to early three-year-old memory, uh, kind of amazing, but it sort of affected, it was an Italian uh, puppet group that had been stranded in the U.S. because of the Second World War. How did your work in Punch and Judy shows help prepare you for larger scale projects? Yeah, terrific question. Uh, you have to you have to go back and sort of think. Well, I spent like with my son performing on the streets for about ten years before we were discovered. Okay, which we were. It's like a Hollywood daydream. Uh, we'd finished packing up the show. We only did one show that day because the weather was so foul. I can't even begin to tell you. And uh, th- this voice said, uh, "Boy, your puppet sure scared my son." And I said, uh, I said, well, that's sort of part of what they're for. And he said, uh, listen, my name's Roger Miller. Has Jim Henson ever seen your puppets? And I said, no, but is that an introduction? <laughs> and he said, yeah. So that's how it all started. Believe it or not, three weeks later, I was hired onto Dark Crystal in London. Wow. Quite a story. Um, going off of that, can you talk? I mean, Jim Henson is a legend. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like working with him? Uh, yeah, of course, you sort of go in with a, a degree of intimidation because I just spent an entire day waiting to talk to him, standing on the set out at ATV Studios. They were filming the last show for Muppets. And that was, uh, if you remember, Miss Piggy as Cleopatra. But it was that show, and I stood there sort of dreading the moment when Jim would have some free time, which turned out to be about 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. And uh, I said, you want to see my puppets? And he said, uh, it flipped through my, through my uh, folio of pictures. And uh, he said, uh, Okay, uh, no, I don't want to see puppets. Uh, I had this huge box of puppets, which I dragged along with me. And uh, I found out later that he was impressed because I had used professional photographer to shoot the pictures of my puppets. And he thought, you got to like your puppets a lot to do that. So 
that's what uh, seemed to impress him. You're listening to Kids First Coming Attractions. Right now we are talking with Michael McCormick, a puppeteer who has worked on a lot of amazing films, including The Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, and Return of the Jedi. And I'm going to hand it off to Benjamin to continue the interview. What was your favorite memory from your time working on Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal? My favorite memories? Well, of course, meeting David Bowie and working with him was an absolute treat. And, and we had shared, the reason I got to know him a little was because he had been in New Mexico before, where I am as we speak, and uh, he had been at a little lake up in the north called Fenton Lake. He'd been there in a little old mining town called Madrid. And uh, for the film, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Mm. And so we knew the same territories because I've grown up here. And uh, so we had something to talk about. So it was pretty nice having that kind of a relationship with David. I imagine he was quite an interesting person to interact with. Amazing. Yeah. I can't say enough. Really just amazing. Kind of a magical a magical person. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, what advice would you give the What advice would you give to those who are uh, considering pursuing a career in film or puppetry? Well, that's a big question because it's so you know, yeah. dramatically different things. Now, now, so much of puppetry is being accomplished with you know CGI, and so it's uh, uh, you know you you work from drawings and and the animators take over and uh, the puppeteer is out of luck. But for those people who were lucky enough to get to actually work with puppets, let me say that it's a very rewarding way to spend your life. Uh, I mean, I'm surrounded with my guys here, and, uh, never lonely. <laughs> and and the, uh, the, the idea of the puppet is so fundamental to human psychology that when they took the puppets out of Return of the Jedi and replaced them with computer graphics, do you remember that story? They, they did that. Mm -hmm. They released it with a computer, and the stuff failed miserably. So they went back to the puppets because nobody was ready to buy that, you know, these puppets being represented by computer graphics. Yeah. It didn't work. It had none of the... The, the kind of tangible feeling of, of the puppets themselves. And Salacious Crown was just a very simple puppet. He had no sophisticated mechanisms at all. So he was just a simple hand puppet. Yeah, so it, uh, and that's what I would suggest. There are two or three universities, uh, UCLA being one of them, USC being another, uh, University of New Hampshire has a, a very good, even a PhD program in uh, puppetry. Uh, so you can get, you know, some pretty sophisticated training in those places. But the best situation by far would be to find somebody like myself who's spent an awful lot of time focused on, on puppets and how they work and how people respond to them. And, because uh, one way or another, and even in a film, you're doing a little performance. You might as well be, you know, in a little puppet booth in your living room. It's a magical process. But it's that relationship between, let me see if I can write, the right word would be, from a training point of view, learning as an actor to project the personality that you have designed for that puppet to push your consciousness into the puppet and the very essence of what you have come to think of as that puppet and the character, you, you kind of disappear and reappear in the form of that puppet on the end of your arm. So it's, uh, it's pretty neat from that point of view. There's a kind of a magical process and I think anybody who's done puppets uh, at all understands that strange space that occurs between the the, the actor performer and the, and the puppet itself and in my case I create my puppets so that's even a closer link than just as an actor being handed one and say here you know shake this in front of the camera uh, and that's what happened with Salacious a very good friend of mine 
who I got to take my place uh, on the show because I had broken my arm yeah. on set. So, and uh, uh, Tim Rose, uh, Tim took over and did an absolutely brilliant job of performing not only Salacious but also Admiral Akbar. So he's had a terrific uh, Comic Con career. <laughs> Well, um, thank you so much for letting us talk with you today. Uh, this is Benjamin Price reporting for Kids First, signing off. See you next time. Bye. Thanks so much, Michael McCormick, for being on the show today. Make sure to check out his many, many amazing work in some of the greatest films from the last few decades. But let's take a quick break. I'm your host, Jerry Orr from Los Angeles, and you're listening to Kids First Coming Attractions. This week's show is sponsored by Octonauts Ocean Adventure. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. To become a Kids First film critic, visit our website to find out when the next audition takes place. We hold auditions throughout the year and are always looking for kids ages 8 to 18 that love movies, love talking about movies, and love the chance to meet the talent that works on movies. We invite kids who live in or near any major city in the U.S., Canada, or the U.K. This summer, join us at our Kids First Film Critic Boot Camp at Temple University, where you can learn how to critique films, how to interview celebrities, and how to set up a home studio for next to nothing. For more info, visit www.kidsfirst.org. Think you have what it takes to become a Kids First Film Critic? Register to audition and give yourself a chance to join the entertainment business as a young entertainment reporter. Hurry! Our auditions take place the first Saturday of the month via Skype. Help us help other kids make smart decisions about the movies they choose. At Kids First, we believe that smart kids make smart consumers. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are tuned into Kids First Coming Attractions on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Turn your phone off. Another film review or celebrity interview is coming up. Hey, welcome back. I'm Jerry Orris from Los Angeles, and you're listening to Kids First Coming Attractions. Now, we don't get the pleasure of talking about classic films enough at Kids First. Classic films are some of my favorite cinema. They're absolutely incredible, and you can learn so much about how film evolved from them. But someone on the show is going to be amazing to talk to about that. He's Film Hopkins. He is a film historian from The Film Detective, a classic media streaming network and film archive. And Zoe will be talking with him all about the world of film and history of film. I'll hand it off to Zoe. Go ahead, Zoe. Hi, Phil. It's such an honor to talk to you. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for having me a guest on your show. It's a great uh, treat and pleasure to be here. Yeah, so where did the idea of creating The Film Detective come from? So when I was very young, I was obsessed with movies that my family had. So back before we had the iPhone where you could take a photo or a movie of anything, you had movie cameras that a lot of families would actually film birthday parties or events around the house. And I had grandparents and great aunts and uncles that made these home movies. And, you know, back then it was not easy to just sort of go and pull out your phone and film everything. You had a camera, and then you had to have the film developed, and you'd wait to get it back, and then you'd get it back from the processing plant. So my family had hundreds of reels of movies, and they would project them through a movie projector, and then they would sit around the house and watch these films and, laugh and talk about the good old days and so that was a way for me to really get a great glimpse into the past of my grandparents when they were young and then my parents when they were little kids and I really became interested in film through the family's home movie collection. 
So you've pretty much always been watching movies your entire life. That's really cool. Pretty much, yeah, since I was a little kid. Um, I love that the platform is so user-friendly. So when you were first creating this website, um, what type of users were you originally expecting? So most of the people that like older movies, they have limited resources in terms of platforms that have classic movies. So Netflix tends to have mostly newer movies. Hulu and other platforms tend to have newer movies. So there is really kind of a void in the space in terms of where you can watch very old movies, going back to the beginning of cinema, the silent movies and lesser-known films. And I realized that the void was pretty much there and it wasn't going to improve because no one was really committing to it. So we could see that a lot of fans of classic movies wanted a destination to watch films. So we came up with the idea of starting our platform, mostly because with technology, you can do that. You can stream pretty much anything. So the idea was to have fans of classic movies or classic TV and promote the movies on our platform and then still make them available to other platforms that are interested in our library. Yeah, so was it hard to create and access titles and restore them? It's a challenge. So we work with a lot of libraries. So we work with the Library of Congress. We work with UCLA, the film and TV archive there. We also work with the British Film Institute. And in addition, we have our own archive that has about 10,000 reels of film. So it is. It's very challenging because the film is old. And in lots of cases, it's deteriorating because film was never looked at by the studios of having value after it had actually run through the theaters. No one was thinking back in 1920 or 1930 that we'd be streaming these movies on the internet and actually having a reason to keep them. So the studios didn't take great care of the film and they didn't see the value. So a lot of the movies that we've restored have come from brittle and old film, in some cases decomposing film. So it's a lot of work and it's a lot of um, sort of detective work tracking down the movies and then sometimes we might be missing a reel of the film. So we have a network of collectors and institutions that help us find the film so we can actually have the best elements. Yeah, and there's so many of these films, titles, and originals. So can you kind of walk us through the different categories and genres the film detective has to offer? Sure. So we range all the way back to the advent of film, going back to the early teens, and a lot of silent movies. And if you think about movies, you know, the history of film, it didn't start out with having sound. You had just a silent film, and when they would show them, they would have a pianist who would accompany the film and actually play along with the film. So a lot of the films that we have have no sound and no music. So we'll have to go back and create a new score to go with it. Or we'll have to find a original old recording to actually sync it up again. And then we have everything from old westerns to film noir, a lot of old um, horror movies from some of the greats like Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney. And then we also have science fiction movies, we have films from different countries. We have old TV series. We have serials, which were done to actually show in theaters when people would come and see one chapter one week, and then they'd come back the next week to see chapter two and chapter three and so on and so forth. So everything to do with classic movies, we really have all those categories in the library. You're listening to Kiss First Comic Attractions. Right now we are talking with Phil Hopkins, who is the founder of The Film Detective, a classic media streaming network and film archive. Zoe's talking to him all about his work at The Film Detective and the challenges and inspirations for it. Go ahead, Zoe. Yeah, actually last night I was watching um, A Dog's Life and I know Charlie Chaplin directed and he acted in this film. And it was so cool because everything was in black and white and there was no words. And actually we're going to be celebrating Charlie Chaplin's birthday on April 16th. So what do you think was the greatest legacy of his career? Chaplin will have been 131 actually. But his legacy is, is incredible. He was 
he produced his own films. He wrote his own music. He was a Renaissance guy, and he did so much with his own resources. And he's known as, you know, sort of the king of the slapstick comedy. He also has the moniker The Little Tramp. But I think personally, his greatest legacy is that in 1921, Charlie Chaplin co-founded an organization called the Motion Picture Television Relief Fund. And what that was was a resource for people that worked in the Hollywood studios that didn't have a lot of money or maybe they fell in hard times. So along with Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, they created this wonderful organization which is still around today. In fact, they're celebrating their 100th birthday next year. And that, to me, is a wonderful thing because so many people that have different needs, whether it be health insurance or they fell on hard times and they need help, this organization has been around for 100 years helping people in the business. So I think, aside from his great films, that's probably his greatest legacy. Did that inspire you at all when you were creating The Film Detective? It certainly inspired me knowing about it, and it made me appreciate that Hollywood gets a bad rap a lot of times, and there's a lot of negativity around, you know, sort of the industry with entertainment and film and certain things. But this is an area that a lot of people don't know about it. And yes, it did inspire me because it's Hollywood giving back to people and helping people. And, and what we do is we kind of take care of film, we preserve film, and we save history. And this organization is saving lives and helping people. So yes, it did. Yeah, and I feel like movies are a way of living. So um, what do you love the most about films? Films, they're a mirror. They make us look at ourselves. They make us understand the human condition. And whether it's a film from 100 years ago or a film that was just produced, everyone has a story to tell. Films are stories. And I think it's a great way to self-reflect and understand a lot about ourselves and also the world around us. Yeah, and... Vintage films are all over the film detective, and it's not only a great idea, but it also gives kids opportunity to see these other films. So what film do you think you would recommend for younger kids to watch? Well, considering it's Charlie Chaplin's birthday soon, there's a movie called Chaplin's Art of Comedy, and that's a documentary that a friend of mine made when he was really young. He's now a lot older, but he made this in 1965. And it's a great documentary about Charlie Chaplin and his life and his film. So if you're interested in cinema history, I would recommend Chaplin's Art of Comedy, which is on our platform. And it's part of a curated playlist of a lot of Charlie Chaplin films. But I would definitely recommend that film. I'll definitely see that soon. And finally, films, I feel like they respect like reflect the spirit of time. So what do you think 2020 films are going to reflect? 2020 films, it's, it's interesting because we're, we're all sort of sitting at home right now. So it's a different, it's a different thing. We're not going to the theaters right now in 2020. So I think 2020 will really be about how we've been communicating through technology. And you'll see a lot of independent films that are made by people who don't necessarily have big budgets that are making great films with great stories because we're stuck at home and hopefully a few young budding filmmakers will get really creative and come up with some great stories for 2020. Thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for Phil for being on the show. Make sure to check out the filmdetective.com. They have a lot of amazing films. My personal recommendation, I'm a huge fan of Buster Keaton. The General is one of my all-time favorite films. Just the things Buster pulls off with literally no effects, just being in danger, is amazing. Definitely check it out. But let's take a break. I'm your host, Jerry Ors from Los Angeles, and you're listening to Kids First Coming Attractions. This week's show is sponsored by Octonauts Ocean Adventure.
get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. To become a Kids First film critic, visit our website to find out when the next audition takes place. We hold auditions throughout the year and are always looking for kids ages 8 to 18 that love movies, love talking about movies, and love the chance to meet the talent that works on movies. We invite kids who live in or near any major city in the U.S., Canada, or the U.K. This summer, join us at our Kids First Film Critic Boot Camp at Temple University, where you can learn how to critique films, how to interview celebrities, and how to set up a home studio for next to nothing. For more info, visit www.kidsfirst.org. Think you have what it takes to become a Kids First film critic? Register to audition and give yourself a chance to join the entertainment business as a young entertainment reporter. Hurry! Our auditions take place the first Saturday of the month via Skype. Help us help other kids make smart decisions about the movies they choose. At Kids First, we believe that smart kids make smart consumers. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are tuned into Kids First Coming Attractions on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Turn your phone off. Another film review or celebrity interview is coming up. Hey, welcome back. I'm Jerry Ors from Los Angeles, and you're listening to Kids First Coming Attractions. Our next guest is Peter Howard. He's the creator of Stress Puppy and Herman Crab. Ethan will be talking with him today all about his work. Go ahead, Ethan. I have the pleasure to interview Mr. Peter G, a.k.a. Peter Holland. Hi, Mr. G. How are you doing? Uh, how are you doing? That's very nice to meet you. Mr. Peter lives in Chicago and is a longtime creator. Among his works are comic strips, comic books, computer games, interviews, and articles for the pop culture website Bleeding Cool. Some of Mr. Peter's comic books are Soundwaves, The Supremacy, and Dr. Hooves. Is that how you say it? Yes. Yeah, okay. that, it, yeah it's a blend of who and hooves. So, yes. So, um, how did you first become a writer? it's hard to say because it's always been an impulse I've just had. Uh, I've always been creative. It's one of those things where you, I can't say what like my first love is. I mean, I remember as a kid, my parents bought me, uh, bought me uh, Snoopy books and I would take those things with me everywhere. And I always wanted to be a cartoonist, but back in high school, you, you find out quickly that artists can be very, can be very exclusionary. And I constantly heard like, oh, your artwork's not good enough. I still, heard, I still hear it to this day, in fact. And what happened was, was that it wasn't going anywhere. And I just basically let it go for like, I don't know, maybe like 20 years or something. And what happened was, was the movie Over the Hedge came out from DreamWorks. And they released some of the comic strips from the Over the Hedge comic strip. And it brought back the memories of how much fun I had creating. So I got back to work to try and refine my art and come up with a style that would work. And I started doing the comic strip Stress Puppy. And then from there, uh, there was an anime called Cardcaptor Sakura that I really enjoyed. And that inspired me to start doing sound waves because artists do not operate in a vacuum. A lot of people think that when you're an artist, you create stuff and that's it. It's like everything influences you and everything inspires you. And in the case of Cardcaptor Sakura, it was, I just enjoyed the flow. I enjoyed the feeling of it. I enjoyed the characters. And I wanted to somehow create something like that. I wanted to play in that sandbox. And it's just continued on with other things I've worked on, either ideas that I thought were good or just things that struck me. And I'm going, you know, I think I could do something with this. So it's, it's actually relatively recently that I got back into it. Uh, my first actual published work was back in 2009, 10, uh, just 10 years ago. But it's been, well, as you can see, I've just been running since then. So it's it's been a blast. <laughs> so um, when did you, like, first start it? Like, what, like, or what age or when? Uh, well, um, 
It's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, I was. I always drew. I always doodled. I was. I mean, my teachers were always taking my my drawings away when I was in school. And like I said, it was just, uh, I kept working on it. In high school, I was trying to be a political cartoonist, but it just, I couldn't get anywhere because I didn't understand how the whole thing worked, how to get into the newspapers and that. And like I said, it just, it wasn't going anywhere and I just kind of fell out of it. So I've always done it. It's just, it didn't die. It just laid dormant until about 12 years ago when I started actually writing uh, scripts for comic books and uh and writing uh for a video game magazine <laughs> so um did you have any like mentors or role models to help you there's been there's been quite a few uh for my writing uh there's a writer named peter david he does a lot of comic books he had a huge influence on me uh neil gaiman is a fantasy writer he did Coraline. he's another huge influence that's that i've had for the cartoons, I've had different ones like like Chuck Jones, who gave us the Bugs Bunny we know and love, Tex Avery, the king of cartoons, Miyazaki from uh, Studio Ghibli, uh, Ralph Bakshi is also a huge influence on me. So there, it's it's been it, it's you go through and you see the things that you can get working for you, and that's what you run with, and you want to pick somebody that actually knows how to get the job done. Because there's a lot of people that are just flashes in the pan and they can't actually inspire you when you hit that roadblock. Because when you create, you're always going to have problems. There's always going to be something that isn't going quite right. And what do you do? And for a lot of people, like as much as I love Disney, I'm a huge Disney nut. Disney was mostly an administrator. He had other people doing the job for him. Whereas Ralph Bakshi, when he had a problem, he had to actually figure something out. So he was not just an artist, he was actually getting his hands dirty in there. And those are the people that you want because you want somebody that can teach you that when things go wrong, it's not the end of the road. You just got to figure out how to get around the obstacle is all. You're listening to Kids First Coming Attractions. Right now we're talking with Peter Howard, who is the creator of Stress Puppy and Herman Crab. Ethan will be talking to him all about his work. Go ahead, Ethan. So, um, what's your favorite like genre? Like, for example, drama or comedy or horror? Comedy. I always come back to comedy. Uh, it's I can do other things, and I can do serious, or I can do science fiction. But comedy is basically the first love. That was what I was doing with the Snoopy comics when I was reading Bloom County. And even with, uh, with Soundwaves, when the story was supposed to be really serious, like the Christmas special about the kids whose parents were getting divorced, I still had to put jokes in there just because that was how it was. So, yeah, comedy is the absolute favorite. I do enjoy the other genres, but comedy is the one I always go back to. And what's your favorite format, like comics, books, articles, movies? There, there is no, it, it's not a question of the favorite. It's a question of what works for what you're doing. Um, I, did, I, I did a collection of short stories called Hannah Singer Celestial Advocate, which was uh, a, courts, a courtroom drama set in the afterlife. And when I was creating it, one of the things that went through my head was, what am I going to do with this? At the time, I wasn't animating. But my options were to try screenwriting, you know, try to get it on TV, try to get it as a book, or try to do it as a comic. And what I wound up settling on was doing it as a regular book because I could have the book basically be like her talking to you over dinner because it's a mythology that only I know and hence only she knows. And with that setup, she could jump out of the story to bring the reader up to speed and then go back in and keep things going. You couldn't really do that with comics and, with, and also with comics. It is, it is a primarily visual art form, so you have to come up with visuals that match it. And that I thought would just be too distracting because most of the act, most of what happens in there is mental. It's her trying to be the smartest person in the room and outthink people. And it just didn't work for something where you have, it works better where the reader can move at their own pace. Not when you have a TV camera moving things for you and not when you have a comic with everything else going on around it. So it's not a question of what's my favorite genre so much as what works, what enables me to communicate these ideas and these visions that I have, what gets the job done. So I don't really have a favorite one way or the other, just as long as it works. So what is your favorite book 
book or comic that you've been working on? Like mine was Hermit Crab. What's yours? Oh, it's it's hard to say because I'm I've been lucky so far. I've really enjoyed all the stuff that I've created. Uh, because I got such a late start, I don't have anything yet that has me looking and cringing on, oh, what was I thinking when I made that? Because, you know, there's a lot of people, they'll create stuff when they just start out, and then 10 years later, they're like, so, so because I started this when I was about 39, uh, I had more, I had pretty much matured, my thought process had settled. So I haven't really had that thing that has me going, man, what was I thinking when I did that? Um, I'm enjoy- I mean, I love Herman. Herman is a lot of fu- is a lot of fun to write, and it's very challenging to try and keep it going and not bore the audience to tears. Probably, though, my favorite was Soundwaves because I still want to go back and revisit that. Uh, Rhapsody and Melody, the girls, they uh, they were just wonderful to work on. Uh, at the time I created them, I was going through a very difficult time with my job, and it was very stressful. It was it was mentally draining. And working on those comic books was the best therapy in the world. A half hour with them and the world was bright. And I never got to finish the story. Uh, the, I got maybe halfway through with it. So in the back of my mind, Soundwaves is the one that I most want to go back to. So I would say Soundwaves is probably my favorite just because of the connection with the girls and how it felt when I brought them to life. Well, um, thank you so much, Mr. Peter, for sharing your valuable time with us kids first. It was a pleasure to have you. It was great being here. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Peter Howard, for joining us today, and thank you to the audience so much for joining us today. You have been listening to Kids First Coming Attractions to watch our latest reviews of the latest films, DVDs, TV shows, music, and apps, and to learn how you can join our Kids First Film Critic team, go to www.kidsfirst.org. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and look for our reviews on press for kids kidsworld.com, and Kidsville News. This show is produced for the Coalition for Quality Children's Media for Voice America and iHeartRadio. This show is sponsored by Octonauts Ocean Adventure. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you stay safe. Thank you again for tuning in to Kids First Coming Attractions on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, you know more which movies, TV shows, or digital media to look for, or learned about the talent that worked on or off camera on them, and can make informed decisions about what to watch. Be sure to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss an episode, and tune in again next week.